0: Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, disaster films cause a geostorm to rage over Cloverfield. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Adam Thomas, and it's coming right for us!
1: And I'm Thomas Mariani, and I mean I can help you out. Or not. Whatever. That was my impression of Academy Award nominee Ed Harris, everybody.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good.
1: Yeah, in this movie, it's like a perfect dead-on imitation of Van as we'll talk about. All you
0: gotta do is add a little Brooklyn to it. You got Andy Garcia, basically.
1: Right, that's through a mild amount of effort into an accent, and... And you got Andy Garcia, yeah. Right, and then also, if I do a really bad British person doing a Brooklyn accent, I can get either Jim Sturgis or Gerard Butler. I just gotta be a bit more gruff, and I get Butler. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> uh, but welcome, everybody, to Double Edge Double Bill, where every week uh, Adam and I pick a random uh, good and bad feature uh, based around a topic, and we talk about it for the show, a good and a bad movie. And uh, we decided in uh, honor, I suppose, of Moonfall, which, to be fair, this was also thanks to our patrons. Uh, you all voted over at patreon.com slash those of you who pay the $1 a month. So, your patrons, uh, chose uh, between movies that basically take place in, like, the atmosphere of outer space, uh, and the eventual winner, which was Disaster Films, which, uh, from director Roland Emmerich, uh, Moonfall, so that, it felt like a pretty good tie-in. It's interesting, because it was such a big genre, particularly in, like, the 70s and 90s, and then, uh, it kind of stopped, and I think, you know, elephant in the room, we kind of know why, uh, because... But it's not escapist cinema anymore to do big, horrible, natural disasters, maybe?
0: Well, yeah, that's a big part of it. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, they just keep getting more and more ridiculous, too like now we're fighting the moon the moon is falling (laughs) like what the fuck is going on
1: well to be fair at least natural disasters have now been implemented into the fantasy landscape where like superheroes will just cause natural disasters yeah like superman will fight with zod and destroy an entire city landscape or the avengers will have to contend with ultron as he raises the tectonic plates or whatever the hell. Um, excuse me, he raised the island of Sokovia. <laughs> and that's right, the Sokovia Accords, that thing they spent a whole movie fighting over, even though it didn't really matter <laughs> at all. Fair okay. enough. QK. <laughs>
0: Tip of my trilogy, sir.
1: Um, but it's interesting, especially because, uh, like I said, there was a big surge of these movies in the 70s. And I have a quote here from Mr. Irwin Allen, who was sort of considered the master of disaster. Uh, back at that time, because he did, like, the Poseidon Adventure and the Towering Inferno and some other big ones. And he says, quote, uh, No, I'm not going to run out of disasters. Uh, pick up Daily Newspaper, which is my best source for crisis stories, and you'll find 10 to 15 every day. People chase fire engines, flock to crash cars. Uh, people thrive to tragedy. It's unfortunate, but in my case, it's fortunate. The bigger the tragedy, the bigger the audience.
0: Good lord, if this guy was reading the papers nowadays... Oh, <laughs> <curious>. holy fuck <laughs> just get out good god
1: it is interesting because like it's naturally cinematic to depict like a horrible huge disaster in its hmm. own way because that inherently creates drama in a way where it's just like oh it's the worst fear of like oh, a raging inferno or a ship capsizing or stuff like that and it still really worked even into like the 90s but, like the not just the Roland Emmerich angle of it all but one of the highest grossing movies of all time is still Titanic yep it is yeah um, uh Oh, that, that Womp Womp of Joy for that great masterpiece, Titanic? Yeah, that's exactly how I sound with joy. Womp
0: womp. Yeah, i become Eeyore.
1: <laughs> <laughs> thanks for noticing. <laughs> yeah. Oh
0: uh, thanks.
1: But uh, what do you think appeals to you, if at all, about the disaster genre, Adam? I'd, I mean, I'd argue I
0: don't know that it ever really does for me. Like, I think they're fine. I think they can be entertaining. I think it's just sort of the spectacle of it all is if I'm going to watch one is kind of what I want to see. Um, but I, for me, they never really just, I don't know, they don't do it for me. And I think maybe the reason is, is because it's like, you know, you can pick up the newspaper and read this shit every day and all that stuff. And I, I don't really want to do that. Uh, so, you know, if I'm going to a movie, its I want some escapism. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it's ever really, really worked for me.
1: Well, I mean, I think it works. It just depends really on, like, I think the bigger problem with disaster movies isn't necessarily making a movie about a disaster isn't inherently interesting, as much as, like, disaster movies, unfortunately, have this problem. Both Irwin Allen and the Roland Emmerich movies, I think, have this problem of, like, oh, because it's a big natural disaster, we have to have a cast of, like, dozens of people, and we have to juggle all these characters along with the natural disasters, as opposed to the ones that I prefer tend to kind of be a bit more micro and isolated. Like, even... Uh, the Poseidon Adventure has a fair amount of characters, but they kind of limited to about like a handful, as opposed to like by the time you get to fucking like the day after tomorrow and there are like 15 fucking characters Earl are trying to juggle at one point. I think it works so much better in, you know, the case of like having a limited amount of characters who you can feel investment in, in the middle of this like giant, awful event that's going on. Even with like an, another one that kind of worked in that way, even with some questionable things about what they changed about the true story uh that movie the impossible with naomi Watts, watson mcgregor and baby tom holland no i honestly don't think i've seen that one uh, it's it's a pretty interesting movie i think the disaster sequence in particular at the opening is very interesting there's some issues with like they made an all-white family and spoilers they were not an all-white family in the real life story oh big shocker yeah uh unfortunately are you accusing um,
0: hollywood of whitewashing no
1: adam I have to sit you down what? and tell you a story of several decades. Oh, of no. Of Hollywood institutionalized oh, racism. No. Oh. No. So, 1922, the moving pictures are out there. <laughs> Hollywood's a bustling with
0: excitement. Oh. <laughs> what do you think, little Johnny. I want to be a white movie star.
1: Oh, no. no, no Johnny. <laughs> oh, no. Johnny, Johnny grew up to be a horrible producer in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but anyway, anyway, uh, we have a couple movies discussed within the disaster genre. A couple interesting ones, because one that I would argue fits kind of the traditional element of that, which is the bad pick of My Two Choices, which we'll be discussing first, which is Geostorm. Um, and then your good pick Kind of fits the other descriptor I had Which was uh, Cloverfield Which also has a couple other genres besides disaster We'll, we'll get into all of that As we go along uh, But let's just start off right now with a Geostorm Thanks to a
0: system of satellites Natural disasters have become a thing of the past We can control our weather Mr. President one of our thermospheric satellites malfunctioned over Afghanistan. Make sure there's no further incidents.
1: Are you going back up to space? I'm coming back,
0: I promise. My axis has been
1: blocked. So a satellite has a bad calm, that happens. Not a satellite, all of them. This wasn't a malfunction. Yeah. But it was intentional.
0: There's potential for catastrophic weather events on a global scale.
1: A geostorm.
0: If you can't stop it, no one can. Three. Two. One. Come on, baby.
1: So Geostorm uh, came out October 20th, 2017 from uh, co-writer and director Dean Devlin, and this is his directorial debut, even though he got his start as a writer-producer who teamed up with particularly Mr. Roland Emmerich, who we referenced earlier. He co-wrote with him on, like, Independence Day and the Godzilla movie, and I think produced, like, The Patriot and Day After Tomorrow or so. So he's has experience in the disaster genre before, but uh, he decided to make this film based on apparently a whole thing of trying to explain to his daughter about climate change. And she asked, like, why couldn't there be, like, a machine that could control like the weather and stuff like that, and he sort of spun it off into what he actually quoted as a fable, a, a uh, bedtime story to tell her about how man can be corrupted to use such a machine for evil means. Did you feel that whimsical wonder watching Geostorm, Adam?
0: Well, <laughs> dude, this was a chore to get this garbage this movie is just pure fucking schlock and I, I, just these supposed twists that happen and the fake outs and i mean just what is this fucking
1: movie i should probably answer that because this was my bad pick and some of you might not have seen this movie because it didn't do very well when it came out uh but basically in uh the distant future of 2019 um after several horrible disasters have happened the nations of the world decide hmm We should probably do something about this. How about we create these satellites that can control weather, basically, and so whenever there's a horrible event like a horrible rainstorm or a monsoon or some other horrible thing, we can send down, like, satellites to basically stop the extreme weather events from happening. And this is all spearheaded by uh, Jacob Jake Lawson, played by Gerard Butler, who leads the big international team that's developing the satellite system, but then Richard Schiff plays this senate guy who is introduced here and never comes back who's just like i'm tired of your rebellious ways because it's supposed to be an american thing and you're trying to make this an international coalition despite the fact that we made an international coalition at the start of this fucking premise um and so you're off it get out of here gerard butler and his brother who is an assistant secretary of state, uh, played by Jim Sturgis, uh, ends up taking on the project. And three years later, so in 2022, we're in the year of Geostorm. What a great time to be alive. Um, it turns out that uh, there have been some accidents that have been happening with the what they call the the satellite system, which is actually not the Geostorm, but Dutch Boy, which apparently is in reference to like an old fable about like a kid who saves a town. Also my favorite brand of wall paint (laughs) right yes (laughs) true um but but basically the, the dutch boy system has been like going haywire and it caused like a big snowstorm to freeze a bunch of people over in afghanistan so they're trying to figure out what's wrong with the system they bring back gerard butler who's like off the force and living in florida Um, And his daughter, super genius, just like, come on, Dad, you got to go up there. You got to save them. You got to save everybody. So Gerardo goes back up there, and it turns out uh, there might be some conspiracies afoot, especially involving the government, uh, particularly with the president, Andy Garcia, and uh, the vice president, who's totally innocent, doesn't have any kind of issues at all, seemingly, Ed Harris. I'm sure he has no kind of illness intent at all, because Ed Harris, always a good guy, Right? Oh, never yeah. a bad guy, yeah, right. Never seen him play a bad guy, never. Right, and even when you've seen him play a good guy, he's always like the nicest guy possible and not at all like right. a gross piece of shit. Oh, no, you know, you'd think it, but he could probably do a lot of good stuff for his career if he would just start playing the heavy a little bit more. So, so yeah, in, in case you couldn't tell, um, I do <laughs> concur with Adam that Geostorm is quite bad. Um, and I think it's interesting because, like, when Dean Devlin worked with their own Emmerich, like there are plenty of problems with those earlier sort of disaster movies that they made in like the 90s and 2000s. But I gotta say, man, watching a movie like this makes you miss the filmmaking craft of an Emmerich in that that dude at least knew how to craft a big, horrible disaster sequence as opposed to this movie where it seems like even in doing some research, I found out there were a lot of reshoots done later. Um, but you can really tell in this movie that, like, all the disaster sequences have the weight of, like, a birdemic, just on a more massive budget. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty accurate.
0: Uh, yeah, no, it's it's just an ugly-looking, haphazardly filmed, acted, scripted film. Do you give a flying fuck about any of the characters in this movie? Like, honestly. Even the population of Earth in this movie, I'm like, I don't
1: care. I don't know what you're talking about. I gave so much of a shit about Jim Sturgis and his smoltering love affair with Abby Cornish as a Secret Service agent who was mm-hmm. secretly meeting behind closed doors and having an affair. Um, yeah. I, I loved, and also, of course, the brotherly chemistry between Jim Sturgis and Gerard Butler. It feels so yep. authentic. These two people who are clearly like 15 years apart in age are mm-hmm. clearly brothers who knew each other and grew up with each other. Yep. And his uh, sassy hacker, he beats. And she's definitely one of the people who's doing this like much like an Ed Harris and like a few other people, like Andy Garcia, where they're just doing this and they're just like with a sigh. is like their yep. main sort of emotional base, just like, all right, uh, let's deliver these lines. <laughs> it reminds me of the Tim Robinson
0: sketch where he's got all this stuff on it. That's what I feel like as he beats it, Ed Harris and Andy Garcia. I don't
1: want to be here anymore. <laughs> I don't want to
0: be here. I got all, I don't want all this shit on me
1: come on Zazzy, go over and turn over that table no it's not gonna work
0: I can't fucking breathe in this shit <laughs> just kill me now <laughs> 100% though just the, the the absurd technology in this movie like not even I, okay I'll forgive it it's a sci-fi disaster movie I'll give it that there's these satellites Dutch boy whatever the fuck it is up it's Sherman Williams up in space and it's uh, you know keeping the weather and you know under control or whatever Whether it's like they have that huge vid screen where Jim Sturgis and Gerard Butler talk to each other, and neither of them are looking at each other.
1: No, not at all. Yes. (laughs) Not at
0: all. (laughs) The horrible fake, like, it's not as
1: hollow whatever. Oh, yeah, like like his version of an iPad, right, where it's just like, you got they got like a hunk of plastic and poorly digitized something on there. Oh, phones. it's so stupid. <laughs> it's really dumb. <laughs> it's so bad. D- Dean Devlin is still firmly in this weird period where it's just like, oh, yeah, that would seem futuristic, but it's like, yeah, maybe from like 1995 when you were writing scripts originally, too. As opposed to by 2015 when they actually shot this, interestingly enough. This movie went through a lot of reshoots and stuff. They filmed this in 2015. They stopped filming in 2015. They finished in 2015. Then they did test screenings. And they were like, okay, we need to get Dean Devlin out of here and get a real cinematic auteur. Like Danny Cannon, whose only other film (laughs) before this was the 1995 Judge Dredd movie, which we've covered on the show previously.
0: I'm not convinced that Danny Cannon isn't a skinny British porn star. Like that's <laughs> they got they got him. They got him. Oh, aka Danny D. They got him to come in and rewrite the script. Get the fuck out of here. Gerard Butler's die job is so bad. And then the eclectic crew that's on like the Dutch boy, how they're all
1: just such stereotypes, especially the Hispanic one. Oh, yeah, Eugenio Derbez? No, he would never play such a stereotype in any film, Adam. He hasn't made a huge career out of that at all. Nope. Dora, Dora. Um, but it's, oh, look, uh... Dora is the least offender because he was also the guy <laughs> in Jack and Jill who was doing that shit. Oh, God. Just like he the was I'm the kidding guy. In Jack
0: guy. Yeah. Oh, God. But then it's like the guy from Umbrella Academy is so. Oh, he's so annoying, dude.
1: I can't tell you how bummed i am by that dude not being that good because like i was so charmed by him in the british show misfits as i was introduced to him and he was like the breakout Mm -hmm. star of that show and i was like oh my god and he left like after the second season and it's like oh man he's gonna have such a huge career and man it's aside from umbrella academy it's been shit like this
0: yeah pretty much i i can't think of anything else i've seen him in
1: there, Other than The Nicolas Cage uh, season of The Witch, I think, was the first project he did. Oh, After he left great. that show. Um, and he's been in a couple of... The Killing Bono movie, if anyone remembers that movie.
0: Oh, yeah, that was a thing? Yeah, that was a thing. <laughs> he was that in. was a thing. But like I said to you, to, you know, I don't care. Do we are we doing a spoiler thing or
1: i don't think anyone gives a shit i don't think that's i don't a think anyone gives because i certainly <laughs> yeah. don't i love that you lot. suddenly care about spoilers now for of all things geostorm you're considering it for a second
0: yeah that's true what am i doing here guess what guys the storm is geo but it's uh the like sort of twist that they keep giving or trying to give you like we already alluded to it clearly ed harris is the bad guy like there's no question right right clearly the guy from umbrella academy is the traitor right no question uh clearly dr butler's not going to actually sacrifice himself and die right no question i'll tell you the one that did surprise me though is when the guy got fucking creamed by the car (laughs) laughed out loud
1: (laughs) there are a couple of funny bad sort of moments like this but the one in particular is, like, there are so many points where, like, things get sabotaged, basically. And there's a point where, like, Gerard Butler's trying to fix a thing, like, on the satellite system, and he's in a spacesuit, and his, like, his spacesuit got sabotaged, so his, like, air vent is going wild. And yeah, the animation yeah, yeah. on Gerard yes. Butler going around in space, it feels like it's, like, If you ever watched, like, behind-the-scenes things of, like, Pixar, like, they used to post these, like, bloopers of, like, oh, the animation model went haywire, we couldn't control it, so it was just, like, going around crazy, like, Miss Incredibles, like, on the floor, just, like, flopping or whatever. That's what this is, and they just finished it. (laughs) They actually went ahead with this. And it looks so fucking funny. Like, he's just getting hit around like he's a fucking pinball machine. Like, ow, 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 ow. Like, he literally like, does a flip turn on the satellite. He's just like, you, you would have died ten times in the middle of
0: oh, this. It, his helmet would just be, like, in the abyss where it's that pink liquid. Except in this, it would have just been, like, beer vomit. <laughs> <laughs> he just suddenly he has a beer vomit. Oh, Christ! Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, Christ. I'm from New York. You're wherever the fuck he's supposed to be from.
1: Hi, I'm Jim Sergis. Is my brother okay? Is
0: he okay up oh, there? No. I'll stay. I'm the new science chief. My brother will only trust me with the kill codes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's all looking stupid. And well, and we should note. So this is technically the second Gerard Butler movie we've covered on the show after last week. <laughs> with movie oh, yeah, true. so it's back to back bad butlers uh but this one fits sort of more of his modern persona which is say hit hitting kind of like that gruff like middle-aged man action hero of sorts which you know mm-hmm. sometimes works sometimes doesn't sometimes you get an olympus has fallen sometimes you get an angel has fallen yeah oh god angels the toughest guy
0: they can get fight as danny houston uh (laughs) anyway (laughs) right
1: so so how do you what do you think works about butler usually as a star adam and why do you think that fails spectacularly here compared to some of his other efforts yeah i the thing is a i think
0: he just does have charisma b i think he's still riding high on 300 fame like i still think that movie just catapulted him to superstar, and he's still going with it but the thing is he always does at least put in semi-consistent performances. He, To me, even when Gerard Butler, like in a movie like this, or even an Angel Has Fallen, doesn't really feel like he's phoning it in. The movie itself around him might be terrible, but it feels like he's at least giving it an effort. Um, and I think that's the reason why, you know, unlike a Bruce Willis or, or guys like that, why Gerard Butler's movies are still going to the theaters. And you feel like he's trying or at least committed. So that exudes off screen and, you know, Audiences appreciate that shit. You know, if you're paying the money to go see it, you want to see someone who at least is giving forth the effort to earn your dollar.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would at least say that's usually the case. I would argue Geostorm might be one of the few cases where it's not that he's not putting in any effort, but it's, it's more you can tell, like, he wants to put in that effort but he's just like really regretful about putting into this particular project.
0: I think that's accurate
1: I think that's exactly accurate especially with all the... Which is more than compared to like an Ed Harris who we mentioned earlier to like circle a bit back to that with mm-hmm. the, when they like the moment you see him in like the briefing office with Andy Garcia where they're both just doing a lot of pen acting where are just like kind of moving their hands a bit but that's about it and Ed Harris especially just like I don't know I mean I think we can probably save this thing I don't know, guys, what do you think? Just like, oh, Ed, you really don't want to be here at all. Just firmly, and, I'll give, and particularly the line I referenced at the beginning of the show, when they go to the Democratic National Convention in Orlando, because of Ooh. course they would have that there. In 2022, by the way, an election year? Question mark, I guess? I yeah. don't know why. <laughs> That's weird. But um, Jim just comes up to Ed Harris and is just like, oh, hey, yeah, how's it going? Just like, hey, so, I mean, I think you're lying to me, so are you, like, okay? I could probably help you. Or not, I don't know. <laughs> Just thinking, Ed. Ed, you have nothing in the tank. Stop it. You know,
0: I gotta get to the president. We need his kill codes. The president is the kill codes. It's dumb. It's fingerprint analysis. Okay, well, where is he? I'll, uh, I'll take you down to him like jesus christ man he's so tired
1: like after every take he just sits in a chair off camera just like Mm -hmm. i'm so tired (laughs) Uh,
0: wait what do i gotta do all right fire the rocket launcher (laughs) like that's so stupid (laughs) it's (laughs) hey you know the thing is it's supposed to be this big giant spectacle too and The effects look instantly dated. Like, this is one of those movies where even though, you know, it's not that old, the effects just are not there.
1: They looked bad even for 2017 standards. Yeah. They looked very bad. And I think it's because a lot of those sequences, like, from what I've heard, like, there's no specifics on what stuff was reshot. All of the disaster scenes look very reshot. Particularly, I think it's in Rio is where, like, during the big climax, they have, like, the beach that freezes over. And everyone dies except for the one lady in the bikini, who's being chased by the cold and she outruns the cold And there's like frozen seagulls falling on her in an airplane. <laughs> it's so fucking funny. <laughs> what
0: are you talking about? It's, oh yeah, dude. That's that's hardcore shit, man. That's an exciting, exciting film. I can't, I, I can't, couldn't get into this movie because everything is so incredibly telegraphed. There's no shocking surprise to anything. There's no big, like, reveal that you don't see coming. It's all so fucking formulaic and stupid that this is just, it's it's a bore fest. And if anything, a movie like this, well, I never expected it to be good. Um, I would at least thought it could be at least entertaining with, like, sort of the disaster element of it or even just being super campy or anything, and it's not at all.
1: Yeah, because that's the thing is... um, I. Watched a bunch of disaster movies like I usually do, prepping for the show, just doing some research. With the disaster element of it, I rewatched 2012, the Roland Emmerich movie, which is not a good movie. I will firmly say it's not a good movie. However, no, there are a lot more fun points where Roland Emmerich was clearly like, hey, Woody Harrelson. Just go nuts. And Woody is not putting in the Ed Harris 10%. He is putting in everything into playing a weird conspiracy nut who believes in 2012. Or even like Oliver Platt is the evil politician. He's just like, oh, are you upset that life isn't fair? And shit like that. It's just like, it's, there's a lot more sort of charm in like these actors willing to go like full bore silly in the way of like an old disaster movie. They kind of have that sense of like, let's camp it up a bit. And that's a lot more enjoyable than most people in here, like I said, look like they're embarrassed to fucking be there. <laughs> just like, oh man, I just, oh, where, where am I doing? What's going on with my life? And I think even with like the formulaic stuff you're talking about, that's less offensive to me than the fact that there's no kind of at least like earnest heart put into this. Like other scenes that feel like they're really reshot are any of the scenes with Gerard Butler and his daughter, which like why are we giving that daughter the opening narration exposition dumps? Uh And why is she like super smart? We're like, she's introduced and her uncle Jim surges is like, Oh, what are you doing? It's like, Oh, I'm just fixing the solar panel here and making sure all the mechanisms are green and all this other stuff. And it's like, Oh, oh, what happened? I thought you were like nine years old. Excuse me. I'm 13. Now I'm sassy young Uh girl. And all of those scenes feel so mechanical and apologies to that young actress. But man, she is just, oof. But not good direction to give that. Yep,
0: my big, my other biggest character thing is that I'm a, I'm really shitty to my dad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's about it.
0: <laughs> that's her whole
1: character. Right, and they and they set her up to be like, oh, she's gonna like matter to some degree because she's like so smart or whatever. And by like the climax of the movie, she's just watching the events on a TV with her mom.
0: And that's it. Oh, he'll definitely be back. He promised me he'd be back. He'd come back for me. And, and just the idea, like this, so the mom is like, you know, where's your dad? He's not home. I've been trying to call him. Did he, did he tell you he'd go somewhere? The mom had no idea that she had to take the daughter back because he was going back up to the the Dutch boy or whatever. Like, she had no idea. She just thought he was still in his trailer in Florida.
1: I mean, it's such top secret information, Adam, that no one could possibly have this leak out because everyone's so trustworthy.
0: Yeah, that's true. And yet, constantly dry brother, I don't listen to anybody, and I... Don't take anybody's, you know, orders
1: and blah, 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 well, well, blah, Well, you know, blah. Adam, like, everything's top secret because he has the code system, right? <laughs> yes, <yet laughs> the
0: president has the
1: failsafe codes, so really, he can't do dick. Well, well no, but no, the, but the code thing of just, like... Oh, yeah,
0: when we went fishing, remember, dad threw his phone in the lake and he'd You get right. it? It's a code.
1: Right, like, Jazzy Beach, you have to decode it with, like, using the numbers on my our dad's cell phone. And it's just yeah, like, using our oh, dad's cell phone. Number. Right, and a story about, like, oh, man, you know, we went fishing, and just don't trust anyone. And then, like, it cuts together, and just like, the government is selling secrets, don't trust anyone. It's like, what the
0: <laughs> That was just
1: Jared Butler talking drunk. They cut out all of the burping that was in between yep. those takes. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's so jumpy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the government they're gonna kill us in the weather and satellites and I don't know where is she I tell her I love her oh, it just, it, this is such a dumb movie like I almost I wish like anything that we just
1: made jokes about happened in the movie to
0: Lisa make this have a moment of like oh that was fucking dumb or funny
1: I mean, I would argue there are a few moments like that
0: that pop this sp- up. The this space suit, I'll give you. Right, well, that I mean, one like, is really great.
1: Like, the space suit or just certain things, like particularly um, Ed Harris, like we mentioned, not giving shit. Or especially when, like, Ed Harris tries to assassinate Jim Sturges, Abby Cornish, and Andy, Andy Garcia as they're in that little taxi. And he's just like, all right, man, get it out. <laughs> the guy pulls out a rocket launcher from yep. Ed Harris' trunk. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because that's going to be easy to cover up, too. But, you know, I mean, like, all those Orlando roaming gangs of rocket launcher guys are just everywhere in Orlando. It's Florida. It wouldn't surprise me. But that's true, right? It's exactly. <laughs> just like, oh, man, look, Disney Castle got burned up by a rocket launcher again. <laughs> yeah, honey,
0: I'm sorry. Mr. Toad's wild ride is closed. They got rocket launcher <laughs>
1: Uh, excuse me, that would be in uh, Disney World, Florida. That's where Disneyland in California is, yes, <laughs> I hate you as much as this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I mean... Uh, It feels just like, honestly, watching it, it, it feels like it's the last gasp of that 90s era of disaster movies. Like, I, th- I think, yeah, absolutely. Right, because this absolutely. was not too long after another movie we covered, Independence Day Resurgence, which Gene Devlin co-wrote with Roland Emmerich, and that was them trying to bring back that, like, era of, like, all right, 90s disaster movies, alien invasion movies, baby, it's gonna work. That movie flopped horribly. And it's like, oh, well, what about if we do it here, but instead of aliens, it's climate change, so... It, that'll draw everybody in <laughs> right now. It's a totally smart business decision. Uh-huh. You know, I will say, though,
0: I did see the other Gerard Butler disaster movie that starts with a G, Greenland, and mm-hmm. I actually kind of liked it.
1: I've heard some people say that's surprisingly pretty good.
0: Yeah, it's surprisingly pretty good. There's a lot of good emotional stakes to it, a lot of good characters, a lot of, you know, family drama, a lot of uh, exciting moments, and, you know, everything that this movie doesn't have.
1: I don't know, Adam. Did it have eugenio Derbez save them with a poorly animated arm coming out of his spaceship and then him going by the window and saying, "You know what? Hey, d- you got to thank the Mexican." It's just like, "Oh, you." <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is there much else that we can say about Geo Fuck. No, there isn't. There's nothing else to say about this movie. I
0: mean, literally we've already said anything exciting that even kind of remotely happens in it and the
1: rest is just uh, garbage pretty good final thoughts um, I'll say that like, yeah it feels like it's just the last dying gasp of that era of you know these big over the top disaster films and it's just like such a low effort kind of turn from most people involved even those who feel like oh man I gotta try and put my best into this are still embarrassed to be doing so. You can tell why the disaster genre just isn't that palpable anymore with people if it's going to be just bullshit like this. I'll say that, like, Moonfall, based on the trailers, looks pretty, like, silly and dumb, but it doesn't look like it's going to be quite as boring as this. I'm not going to say it's going to be a good movie, but I will put my stake here that I don't think it will be as bad as Geostorm. (laughs) Hot take. I guess I gotta agree. Hooray! Reluctant agreement! <laughs> My favorite kind! <count. laughs> oh, well, on that note, Adam, it's time we get to the better disaster film, and uh, one that crosses a few other uh, genres with uh, Cloverfield. Why? He's coming. Why is he here? Let's go. Surprise! What is this for? It's for Rob. Say something to him before he leaves. Rob's awesome. I'm gonna miss it. Rob, have fun in Japan. You owe me a letter to our What was that
0: noise?
1: It sounded like an animal. Looks like you should've left town a little bit earlier. So Cloverfield came out January 18th, 2008, uh, from director Matt Reeves, writer Drew Goddard, and the big producer was J.J. Abrams. And it's an interesting, and we talked about last week with The Grey about sort of like how marketing promotion can kind of screw over a movie to a certain degree. Um, this will be a case where marketing is kind of crucial to talk about because it was sort of the big hype around the movie was it's summer 2007. People are gathering to see the new Michael Bay Transformers movie, the first one. The one that gave us a bit of hope that they might be good for a split second uh, before the movie started. And during that preamble to the movie starting, there was a trailer for a movie that just popped up all of a sudden. A bunch of people at a party, hanging out. All of a sudden, there's a big crash sound. They go up to the roof, and they see a bunch of fireballs come down. They go all the way downstairs in the apartments, and then they see another giant thing careening toward them. What is it? The head of the Statue of Liberty. What? And then a date, one And everyone in that theater throughout the entire runtime of Transformers is like, what the fuck was the Statue of Liberty movie? What is that? And that started the big viral marketing campaign that led to Cloverfield coming out in January of that year. And Adam, this was your pick. So uh, uh, why did you decide to pick this one as a good example of the disaster genre?
0: Well, one, it falls right in line with the old school kaiju disaster sort of movies where you know, giant monster show up, Wreck City. And I, I just, I, I remember getting so swept up in sort of the speculation of it. Like, a lot of people were like, it's another Godzilla movie. Like, I heard
1: that a lot. There was the rumor that it was going to be a Voltron movie at one point because someone uh-huh. said, it's alive, it's huge. And they were like, a lion? It's a lion? Voltron? Yes, I remember that. And you're like, oh, God,
0: what the fuck? But that's what people were so into it. I thought it was such a cool idea and the marketing was so cool. I remember people flipping the poster and like, look, you can see the face of the monster in the clouds, you know, all that type of shit. You're like, no, you can't. But it just, it was so exciting. And then, you know, I remember when it came out and before I got to see it, people were like, oh my God, people got sick in the theater. They're throwing up for the motion sickness and blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, well, now I really got to see it. Cause what the hell is happening with this movie? So, you know, I finally did, and uh, I watch it, and I think it's just really exciting. It's pretty much from beginning to end. Now, there's a couple things about it, one in particular that I wish we could change, but um, I picked it because it is just exactly what it is. It's a disaster movie, man. It's buildings being destroyed, people dying by the thousands, military getting dissolved, trying to take down this thing that just won't go down, and... You know, people losing their loved ones or getting horrible diseases or it kind of runs the gamut of what you get in disaster movies as a whole.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, like, with, as you mentioned, it crosses over with kaiju because there's a giant monster attacking the city. Like, with that genre, I wouldn't classify necessarily every kaiju movie as a disaster movie because there are plenty of Godzilla movies that aren't that. They're just like, oh, silly, Godzilla might destroy a couple buildings, but there's no, like, huge catastrophic, like, loss of life being depicted um, but this one kind of fits along with like the original 1954 Gojira and uh, some of the other movies that have come out that kind of replicate that in the franchise, particularly the 2014 American movie and Shin Godzilla, that kind of treat Godzilla as a sort of like unfeeling sort of natural disaster that's storming through. And it does not care to either like in malicious ways or in kind ways at all about human beings it will just come through and destroy everything without even batting an eye. Gojira and Cloverfield are both very much based in dealing with a real human tragedy, where that was obviously about Hiroshima. This one's very firmly a post-9-11 tragedy. It's oh, dealing with true. disaster from the perspective of, like, we have encountered a disaster like this before. And it's kind of just, like, been dealing with that head-on. And I think that really works, especially for Cloverfield, because it's like I talked about earlier, this is the micro sort of look at what a disaster could you know, be affected by somebody, particularly with the found footage angle of it. I think it's one of the better examples of that found footage angle because it's really giving you a POV perspective on a giant monster attacking, which was always something like whenever I saw like Jurassic Park or the first Godzilla movies I ever saw, like my biggest fear was always just like the size of one of these creatures. The fact that it could be like taller than a skyscraper. Or whatever, terrify me. And even this creature isn't even that huge. It's not Godzilla sized, but it's like so giant from our perspective that it's just unsettling to see from that POV cam. Just like, oh my god, and just seeing even glimpses of it, I mean, it just sends shivers down your spine.
0: No, absolutely, dude. I always thought about that too. Like, just how wh- how could you get away from this thing if it, if this actually happened? Like, you're 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 fucked. You're so fucked. And this movie, you know, what I really love about this movie is it constantly is upping the stakes too, but not in like extreme manners because the story is already extreme enough, the giant monster, but then you get the parasites and they bite you. You get that horrible thing that makes you explode. And then the girlfriend's in the building and she's, you know, severely wounded and yet the building's torn in half and you got to try to get to her. And then the helicopters and the monster gets bombed, but it does not take down the monster. And then it just constantly is going up and up and up. But then, you know, at the moments of real intense thing, then they interspice old footage of like everybody happy or everybody in love or people kissing or making promises to each other. And it's just, it really constantly keep the, well, not just the emotional involvement, but like the tenseness and the just, Oh, what the fuck are they... Are they or aren't they going to make it? It just keeps it on nine all the time. And it's this movie is... You know, when people describe movies or experiences like sort of white-knuckle thrill rides, that's Cloverfield for me, like 100%.
1: Yeah, honestly, even rewatching it, because I remember feeling that way in the theater, for sure. Just like, oh my god, this is intense. But then even rewatching it recently, I was like, well, I've seen this movie several times. I really dig this movie. But I'm like, am I still going to feel that kind of intensity? And man, the moment that fucking... Statue of Liberty sequence really starts with them all going up to the roof and all the fireballs coming down. Like my hairs were standing on end. It was still just like, oh my god I can't believe this is happening. It just feels it's such a good filmmaking from like Matt Reeves and Drew Goddard where I agree with you that like the way that it continues, it's not necessarily just upping the stakes but it also feels so naturally stream of consciousness that it feels genuinely like you're just like okay, we gotta like get over to some area of Manhattan. Let's see if this will work. Oh, let's go across the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, nope. Not gonna happen. Uh, fuck, let's go over to buy the Manhattan Bridge. Oh my god, the monster spec. Let's go into the subway. Let's do all this other stuff. Like, it feels like it's such a natural use of setting, especially interestingly given most of this was shot in LA. Like, the only time they went to New York was for a week of shooting at the end of production where they had to use the streets. And it wasn't even that much of it, obviously, because they couldn't select that off. And the ability to, like, really make the blend between that and, like, the sets that they use is kind of seamless. It's a great example of a found footage movie that has like a huge, massive kind of like a building at its disposal to use like giant sets and all this other stuff. But it feels like because of the POV cam, like it's disguising that. The DV cam look of the footage just like really disguises any of that artifice.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, they, they And you could tell, you know, if you've watched movies enough like we have or other people have, you can tell when they cleverly, you know, maybe do a scene where they're running so the camera's bouncing or the camera shakes or moves fast to sort of hide their edits and hide their cuts. It's really expertly done. Um, I just, you know, and again, to to go back, I, I really do love this movie. I really, really do. I hate that now I have to watch this monster movie through the perspective of another monster.
1: Yeah, we should, we should probably address that elephant in the room.
0: Yeah, T.J. Miller being that dirty, sick fucking elephant. Yeah. It just sucks because you, you're following Hammond and he's basically narrating, and he's the one who's trying to have moments of levity. And, you know, ultimately the movie ends with his death pretty much. And, yeah.
1: <sighs> Look, I mean, I'm definitely firmly in the fuck you TJ Miller camp. I don't think I, I want to make sure that's very clear from the start of this, that, like, fuck that dude and all the bullshit that he's saying. Oh, done. yeah, definitely. I remember this was, I think, the first time I was at least aware of T.J. Miller as a an actor to some degree. I think me too, to be honest. Yeah, because uh, it was his first movie, apparently. He'd been on TV and stuff like that previously. Okay. Um, and I'll say that in this movie, I don't think he had quite developed the annoying T.J. Miller persona that inflated his ego and I think led to, you know, even though he did plenty of awful things before he became... A uh, movie star in any degree, obviously. It's always going to be a problem to some degree. I would sure. argue it's less of a problem to me here because he hasn't quite developed the persona, I guess, that grew annoying anyway before I found out he was a piece of shit. As opposed to, like, if I were to ever go back to, say, like, Silicon Valley, which also has another piece of shit apparently with Thomas Middleditch involved um, you know it, it's good. Know, yeah. right, but like if I go over like Deadpool or whatever where he's around it just feels like that'll be a bit more of a problem to me as opposed to here one you don't see him that often him in the flesh and even his voice he doesn't go to that over the top screaming thing nearly as much um, but I still get also that look it's going to be a problem for anybody going back to this movie yeah, because it's fucking yeah, yeah. T.J. Miller I get it but at the same time the people around him are so good that I can also kind of be a bit more, you know, distracted from him because a lot of these other people unfortunately didn't have the near the success that piece of shit did. And it's a bummer because a lot of them are very good. I think the the more successful one is Lizzie Kaplan. She I would say is the standout obviously with particularly how much she has to deal with TJ Miller's stupid shit like, oh, you know who Superman is? Oh wait, oh do you know Garfield as well? <laughs> shit like that. She's so fun in this movie when she gets to do that but also gets to have the dramatic brutal stuff happen Um, but at the same time also Michael Stahl, David, Odette Yasmin, Jessica Lucas and Mike Vogel they're also all very good and very natural as much as you can expect from like people who all came from like modeling careers and shit like that they feel very natural despite that it feels like she's in the middle of a horrible situation with this group of actors who I think are all really solid
0: no I agree it does it just feels like a group of good looking young successful like business types None of them – yeah, I, I agree. I, you would believe it right away that they all have these existing relationships and that, you know, the two are brothers and the one relationship has ended poorly and, and et cetera, et cetera. I think it – uh, I, I think it really works. And by the way, the fact that she brought her fucking new boyfriend to his going away party.
1: Well, if you're dating Ginsberg from Mad Men, you got to yeah. bring him to the party. <laughs> no, no, I mean I just love also – that party has plenty of like very small appearances from – other people Like, there's the one shot where, like, Hud is going over to the first person they're interviewing, and it's a woman and her boyfriend, Theo Rossi. I was like, yep. oh my god, Theo Rossi, I can't believe you're here. <laughs> and, like, you can see Charlene Yee partying in the background, or uh, they talk to uh, one of the few people of color at that fucking party with uh, Baron Vaughn, who's the current voice of Tom Servo, and shit yep. like that. There's a lot of interesting people that show up at that party, Uh, and also Ginsburg, of course, shows up. Just like, hey, what's up? I'm the douchebag boyfriend. You're not gonna see me again. I probably die horribly. (laughs) I probably Uh, got crushed by that building. (laughs) I'm assuming, yeah. But uh, (laughs) what is the most like thrilling set piece in this
0: one for you? Like, is there one set stands out for you?
1: Um, I mean, it's probably gotta be the subway sequence. I think
0: subway sequence. That's the right answer, you
1: pat. Hey, right. hey. Um but but even then there's like earlier stuff like even it's not so much really the scenes of like them in direct terror. Like the subway sequence is great with like the use of the night uh you know the night vision and the little crabs yeah, like days. sprite yeah. monsters, yeah, they're going around. But even just stuff like when they go to the electronic store and they're looking at the news footage, I just love that sense of communal just pause. Like when everybody's looting that electronic store and they all stop to look at that news report. That's going on just like 10 fucking feet down the block, which is so unsettling. And it's just, it it feels surreal and nightmarish in the way of like, it's like being in the middle of a weird Lovecraftian story of just like, hey, a giant Cthulhu monster showed up, guys, in the middle of fucking New York.
0: I remember that was a rumor too for a while. Uh, The people, you know, who saw it and everything were like, I think this is Lovecraft. Like, based on a Lovecraft mythos, no it's not, but it definitely does.
1: Well, I mean, some of the viral marketing came to that, particularly like the whole thing about the Tarkuda, the oil company that uh, Michael Saul David was going to leave to work for. Like, there's that whole, um, like viral marketing thing about, like, oh, there was an oil rig that crashed in like the the viral video, and it was just like, oh, that's where the monster basically came up was when that oil rig crashed, so like came from the depths of the sea, basically.
0: Is it the, the true thing, like, there was a satellite that crashed into the water?
1: Well, look, I mean, if we're going by, like, modern continuity, there's also, like, oh, according to the Cloverfield Paradox, it was an alternate dimension. <laughs> there is. I, I'm almost positive. When they're on the train car, or, like, the, uh... Well, at the very end, yeah, there's the one, like, thing that comes down from the sky, right, which some people have also rumor that it's, like, it came from that particular point. I don't know, there's a lot of, like, mixed speculation on it, whatever. I don't think that... The, the great thing about that viral marketing stuff was like it was really cool for getting you interested, but the movie stands so well on its own that also it doesn't matter
0: like at all. Right. Yeah, that's true.
1: You you don't really uh, need any yeah, of that because you're yeah, I don't care. you're you're much more invested in scenes like the Brooklyn Bridge one, I think, is actually another great example of being unnerved because like it's such a good example of blending like they shot part of that on a set. And part of it on the actual Brooklyn Bridge just people walking around. And then when things go into chaos, it's a set. But it looks so seamless, especially when, like, the suspension wires start breaking after uh, Mike yeah. Vogel dies. It is just, like, oh, my God, this thing I've fucking seen forever in, like, movies and bullshit is falling apart in front of them.
0: Yeah, it's pretty hardcore. And then when he basically just gets slapped by the tentacle, pretty, like, terrifying. Because you almost expect him to be one of the ones to get through to the end. Uh, and he, nope, he dies off pretty quick.
1: Right. And there, I love also that there are those big sequences, but enough also other moments where the moments you get to breathe are just in basking in these people having survived a horrible event like that and dealing with the trauma of it. Like when they're all right in front of the Sathora and they're just like, oh, oh, my God, I can't believe that just fucking happened. My brother died. Or even when fucking uh, Michael Sullivan has to make that phone call to his mom. And I like that you don't hear the other end like in another disaster movie. You would have like the straight up shot of him and you would hear on the other side of the mom crying about it, but you just see him reacting and it gives you everything. It's so well done.
0: Yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking because like you said, without even hearing what's on the other end, you can hear it. Yeah. Like, you know that she's just destroyed and also worried and scared for him and blah, blah. Yeah, it's it absolutely is just, oh God. Does the monster seem to change size a couple times to you? Like, especially at the end when it's like right over TJ Miller,
1: like it looks maybe a little bit smaller. I mean, I always thought it was a bit smaller. I don't know if it ever seemed like even that much bigger because whenever we see it like looming over a building, it's a smaller low level building anyway. We always get the sense that it's like about half the size of a skyscraper at best.
0: Yeah, I guess.
1: Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, it's not the Cloverfield Paradox one that's for sure Uh, yeah right (laughs) where it's like oh my god it's in the stratosphere or whatever the fuck, and it could hit like a plane or some bullshit yeah it's interesting we should i guess address the fact that this is technically the start of a franchise 10 cloverfield lane and uh the cloverfield paradox are both worth discussing in a bit more detail I know there's been all these rumors now that J.J. Abrams has said, like, oh, we're going to do a direct follow-up to this movie. It's like, the next thing in this franchise. Like, this was announced, like, <sighs> a, a year or so after Cloverfield Paradox. And they keep saying, like, oh, we're going to do it. We're going to do it vaguely. And I'm sure it'll plop out just like all the other ones did suddenly. Just like, oh, yeah, it's coming in, like, a, a second. It'll, it'll be on a gas station TV <laughs> when you go over yeah. to fill up <laughs> or some bullshit. That's how I like to watch my movies. Well, look, all cinematic events. That's how Scorsese loves watching movies, is on gas station TVs. That's how I saw Dune for the first time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, how how do you feel about potentially following up this movie at this point? Like, Do you feel like there's much need in following up the events of this movie? No, not at all,
0: because what are you going to get? You're just going to get, you know,
1: the government trying to
0: kill the monster, or a whole new set of people in a different city, or outskirts of New York, or, you know, a The fucking survivors right they'll pop into
1: somebody just like oh who are you it's Jessica Lucas the one survivor and just like yeah
0: exactly I don't
1: need any of that shit
0: no I don't need that or Killian Murphy will somehow be in it (laughs) like
1: he'll be in he'll reprise his role from A Quiet Place 2 as a rural farmer dad Yeah. the the best thing for Killian Murphy to play just like yep uh, natural (laughs) farmer boy Killian Murphy yep Totally believable. Totally, <laughs> totally believable totally uh, believable. no yeah I agree I think um, it's there's not much need because I think also even that mystery really works for this movie in terms of like you're plopped in with these characters you don't know the events that go on like why the monster's actually here what it's after we've heard certain hints about like oh it's like a lost puppy basically kind of thing which is like it's kind of lost looking for, around for something and I think we don't necessarily need any of that because it, it really comes through with shout out to like Phil Tippett's um, a special effects house that made the oh, Clover yeah, Monster. I love the way the Clover Monster, whenever we see it, how it moves, it has this weird natural kind of scared tendencies, but also it's super threatening. And we get so much of its character even through the few shots we see in the movie that are so stellar. Particularly the final shot with HUD is just like one of my favorite shots in any of these monster movies, which you are naturally like, this is you, looking right up at a giant kaiju monster as it eats you alive. It's unnerving. It's such a great example of really especially portraying a character that like couldn't be portrayed by like motion capture or the old suit mation stuff. It is truly an alien being.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's incredibly unique. It doesn't look like any other kaiju that's really come before it or well maybe not since.
1: I mean, there's that's the trouble. So there's a lot of movies that kind of ripped off this design after yeah. quite badly.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's just it, it's so cool looking like it's got the overreaching like sort of elbows that almost extend above its head the way it crawls and walks. And it's got the, you know, the, the air pockets or whatever you want to call it on the side of its head. It, it's just this weird fucking, like you said, alien looking thing. But you could almost believe that something like this lives in the deep, deep dark ocean that we've never seen before.
1: Right. That The only people who have seen this before this are like uh, James Cameron and his crew, basically. James Cameron knew. James Cameron was well aware this monster existed.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely love the design of the creature. It, it, it gives it such, like you said, such an alien thing. And yeah, it definitely looks like it's scared. Like when they're shooting at it with the rockets and stuff. Like, it's terrified. But also that thing don't fuck around, man. <laughs> like it, it don't take them rocket blasts they just keep coming after you. Uh, I, I think it's, it's wonderful, wonderful character design, creature design and uh, effect work still holds up because of the sparsity that you see it.
1: Right. And it, because at the same time, we're still focused on like, even when all that horrible stuff is going on near the end of the movie and you can like hear like the sirens are going off and all this other stuff. What matters is that you have Michael Stahl, David and Odette Yustman just in the middle of like the most terrifying situation, just like, we are trapped under like this bridge in Central Park, and we are going to die. We, have, we oh, are yeah. sharing our last moments, and we are trying to like film it to a certain degree. I think that's another thing is that, like for the found footage aesthetic, this is one of the few times where I get people shooting it, especially at this particular time, where it feels like sure. there's not going to be much other documentation. Nowadays, there's going to be people fucking putting it on Instagram immediately oh, it's, yeah. and it's all this other right, shit. Right. Right, as opposed to, at that point, it's just like, not a lot of people are going to get the real story of this, so we're just going to try and keep shooting, especially somebody like Hud, who feels like, well, I don't have much else to provide, because I'm piece of shit T.J. Miller, so I might as well shoot this. <laughs> right. Uh, and, you know, just a shout-out also to Matt Reeves, where it's so weird that this is, like, he'd worked with J.J. Abrams on, like, Alias and mm-hmm. some of his shows, and he had, of course, directed the cinematic opus The Pallbearer before this, his debut. Oh. Which we all love, right. With, right. Uh,
0: David David Schwimmer?
1: yeah, David Schwimmer. Oh, <laughs> the, Back when David Schwimmer vehicles existed. and <laughs> But this ended up really uh, skyrocketing his career afterward because he ended up doing Let Me In and the last two Planet of the Apes movies. Now, of course, he's doing The Batman, as it were. And it feels like he's kind of a guy where he's not necessarily an auteur in the traditional way of like, oh, all those movies feel like they're Matt Reeves doing them. As much as just, like, they're very well-done workman-like jobs. I was 100% going
0: to say that. He feels like a workman director, like a studio director.
1: But the best example of that, where, like, he will do it, but he'll do a great job without, like, a distinctive style, necessarily.
0: Right. I I 100% agree. He's like a journeyman director. He can do whatever you need him to do and do it well. And uh, yeah, I absolutely think that's what he is, and, I, and I'm I'm okay with it because I'm glad he keeps getting work because he does good work.
1: Right. He'll make a much better than you'd expect studio movie, particularly like with those Apes movies, where it's just yeah, like, yeah. Those I mean, The no Rise business. was very good from Rupert Wyatt, but then mm-hmm. he just up stepped it up even another level with those other like particularly Especially the Dawn. Second one. Yeah, 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 Dawn really worked well. But yeah, I mean, Adam, uh, I guess uh, any final thoughts about Cloverfield? Uh, Cloverfield is a great
0: addition to the kaiju genre, especially one coming out of you know the good old US of a, America. But it, it's just a great addition to sort of that tried and true uh subgenre of horror or sci fi. You know, I, I love big kaiju movies, and I, I think this one is absolutely one of the tippity tops, at least of the modern era. Um, I think it's still thrilling, still exciting, still holds up special effects wise. Creature design, like I said, is great, the acting's great. Uh, it's genuinely tense. You genuinely feel for a lot of the characters. And uh, yeah, I, I I think it's one of the best examples of found footage that exists as well. Uh, there's a reason, like you said, for it to be filmed. It's not just for the fuck of it people are filming. It, it, there, it genuinely feels like there would be something at least a couple people doing this to document this and uh i think it works on every level pretty much
1: yeah um i mean i i generally agree i think it's definitely one of the better examples of like the american kaiju in particular where when they've gotten to handle like the godzilla movies it's been varying degrees of sometimes it works sometimes it's interesting sometimes it just really falls flat um, and I think this is one of the better examples of them, like, really creating a monster and doing such a wonderful job with especially not showing it to you as much in a way that doesn't feel like it's kind of cheating you out of it. Like, say, the 2014 Godzilla movie feels like at times, as opposed to this, like, it really helps it's also 77 minutes before it hits credits, which is pretty stellar. That it's just like, no, this is a quick stream of consciousness, like, you are bang, bang in the middle of all this horrible stuff. As brutal things happen, like, we didn't even talk about Lizzie Kaplan's death in this movie is one of the most unsettling things where it's just so quick. It's just like, Oh my God, what's happening? She's like bleeding out of her eyes and she explodes. And we don't even see anything because it's behind like a, you know, a tarp, because so we see, like, a shadow of it bursting, basically. But it's so unsettling, and it creates, like, so much tension. Even throughout this whole movie, does such a great job of making you feel the pain and the horror and all this other stuff without showing you a lot, and also while keeping it, like, a PG-13. I think the, the most unrealistic thing about this movie, really, is that no one is screaming fuck at the top of their lungs. Uh, otherwise, yeah, it's a pretty great movie, except uh, I think we can uh, both firmly say this once again. Uh, fuck T.J. Miller.
0: Yeah, no, he's a piece of shit. I think we've uh, addressed this before elsewhere, but yeah, fuck TJ. Right,
1: but we'll we'll underline it here. Fuck him. (laughs) I hope that dude doesn't work again. That is the end of us discussing our two features, but we have a segment, Adam, that we do every week here called The Double Redo where um, we each have uh, a total of four movies, uh, two good ones and two bad ones that we want to recommend and not recommend based on the topic we're discussing. So I have a good and bad double feature Adam has the same, uh, and uh, we have it related to, of course, the, the disaster film genre. And so I'll go ahead and start with uh, my uh, choices here. Uh, for the good, I have uh, one that's a bit more of like an artsy uh, recent affair with Melancholia which is from director Lars von Trier and if you're unaware basically this takes place at a wedding uh, that's going on in the middle of uh, what appears to be an asteroid is about to hit the earth and is going to destroy everything and uh, this is a big ensemble cast you got Kristen Dunst plays the bride-to-be Uh, who's having a bit of, you know, depressive spouts because of not just the horrible asteroid that's coming and is going to destroy them all, but also just her own depression she's been dealing with for her whole life. Uh, But also, like, Charlotte Gainsborough and Kiefer Sutherland. Udo Kier is amongst them as well. And uh, Lawrence von Trier is a guy known for making uh, pretty fucked up, depressing movies. I've avoided a lot of his movies, honestly, because of that, Uh, because I've seen some of these, and sometimes you get this, which I really enjoyed, sometimes you get uh, Antichrist, which I'm not necessarily as huge a fan of, but I think Melancholia works so well because it's really based in sort of like this honest, earnest depression that feels, not like it's just making you wallow in it just to make you feel upset, but it's sort of this weird way of like making you kind of realize the horror of what's going on and how all of these people react to it, particularly with Dunst does such a phenomenal job. It is a career... Best performance from her. Just really immersing herself in the darkness of this character and how she, even before the asteroid is like imminent, she is like turning off a lot of people and not necessarily the kindest person to be around at times, but it comes from an earnest sort of like depression that feels real, that feels very much like somebody who's been dealing with these issues her whole life, and how that kind of is amplified just by the fact that the world is going to end. I think it's a stellar example of doing, once again, a disaster movie where there are a lot of characters. But it's not so much like a Rowan Emmerich thing of like, oh, everyone has to have a weird subplot. It's like, no, just seeing all these people trapped in this one big villa, just dealing with the apocalyptic chaos. And I think it's a stellar example of how to do such a depressing topic in a really beautiful, earnest way. Um, And then I have a much older film from even before that 70s era disaster craze. Uh, I have The Day the Earth Caught Fire, which is a movie I hadn't even heard of until doing research for this episode. And I'd heard it was an interesting little British film where basically it's still in the middle of, like, the Cold War. So the U.S. and Soviets are making these big nuclear tests that are going on. And uh, it mainly follows this one British reporter who is, you know, just trying to, like, live his life as, like, a a bachelor who he's divorced, has a kid that he doesn't see that often – and he's trying to romance this local woman while at the same time, there's all these seismograph readings We're like, hmm, after that last test, I don't know what's going to really happen. There's some weird stuff going on. And as it turns out, basically, because the U.S. and the Soviets have done their tests at the same time on like opposite sides of the Earth, it's tilted the sort of rotation of the, the Earth by like 15 or so degrees, which is making it hurtle toward the sun. So horrible natural disasters start happening like the the Thames because they are in London the Thames start like boiling over and like a horrible heat mist starts coming out and I love also the movie's structure but, like at the beginning you get the sense of like oh man all this is in chaos by it's a mostly black and white movie but during the opening and the closing uh, the filter changes to like an orangey yellow to indicate they're very close to the sun and it's a really cool effect. And it's not necessarily very flashy and over the top, but it's such a fascinating kind of look at this movie where they're covering like the sort of uh, the Cold War issues that are going on at the time. But it feels very prescient because there are certain points where there are horrible natural disaster events going on and people are just trying to live their lives at the same time. People are just trying to keep going about it and trying to almost ignore it. And it feels like, oof, oof. This movie from 1961 is getting pretty relatable, unfortunately. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating little movie that still has a lot of entertaining elements. There's still like a sort of a His Girl Friday back and forth earlier on in particular with the two leads. That's really fun. Uh, but as it keeps going along, it's this not flashy, but engaging disaster story. That has a lot of great characters, a lot of great sobering moments. And also the, I believe, first speaking role for Mr. Uh, Michael Caine before he was even in Zulu, which was his first big film. To get to my bad choices here, I have... I'll just briefly address this, because everyone talked about this movie last month. And it's one that many would probably suspect one of us would have picked. So I'll just say it. It's Don't Look Up, the Adam McKay movie that's trying to be sort of like a modern Doctor Strangelove, about an asteroid that's hurtling toward the Earth, and a bunch of celebrities are in it, like Leonardo DiCaprio, and Jennifer Lawrence are trying to warn everybody about it, but... The president, Meryl Streep, is saying, like, oh, no, we can just ignore it and web out our polls and all this other stuff. And a bunch of other celebrities show up. And, uh, you know, this was very divisive. And a lot of people loved it. A lot of people hated it. I'm more in the hated it camp, uh, mainly because it's not that, oh, it's dealing with, you know, climate change and COVID to some degree. And it feels like it's being preachy. That's not necessarily my problem with it. It feels like a middle-aged liberal dad conversation. Where, like, what they would do in, like, the middle of all this, like, chaos about, like, oh, my God, Trump and, you know, uh, climate change all this other stuff. Isn't it fucked up? And you would say, yeah, it's, it's pretty fucked up. I basically agree with you. It is fucked up. But I don't want to hear that guy repeat that for two and a half fucking hours and think that he's so fucking funny while he's doing it. Especially when that's just, like, a really boring comedy setup is just have that be the setup and punchline of all of your gags is just, hey, things are fucked up. Oh, and everybody ignored it. Things are fucked up and everybody ignored it. Like, I get the point you're coming across with, but I don't want to watch that for, like, so fucking long. Why do we need to be this indulgent with this bullshit? It's like, imagine a Judd Apatow comedy that goes on for way too long and you lose team on jokes, but the additional layer of, like, oh, hey, we're trying to satirize everybody. We're just, like, political figures suck and we suck for being so obsessed with celebrity culture, yet we're going to make fun of that with our big movie, it's full of hollywood celebrities at the same time it feels super fucking hypocritical adam mckay but sure fine just keep ranting and raving about shit we're already kind of aware of and instead of donating any of this money to like climate change research just make a big dumb movie with a bunch of dumb celebrities that's a fun idea great use of our time anyway uh the next one i have is actually adam the alternate good choice that you had because i hadn't seen it before and i decided to rewatch some of the classic disaster movies and um was not a fan of the Towering Inferno. This was the second big Irwin Allen disaster movie after the Poseidon Adventure, and uh, this one feels like it suffers from all the huge problems the Poseidon Adventure, but times like ten. Because Poseidon Adventure has a lot of problems, particularly with how it uses its female characters, and the Towering Inferno has, I think, some even worse examples. Where basically, if you're unaware, huge skyscraper has been opened. And everyone's like, oh, my God, it's a huge skyscraper. We have to have, like, a big event. And the owner of the skyscraper, like, cut a lot of, like, costs back so he could have a giant tower, which included fire safety concerns. And they're all having a huge opening gala party on, like, the 135th floor when all of a sudden a fire starts breaking out, like, the 89th floor. And fire start spreading around. And it's up to, like, a bunch of uh, firefighters to try and get up there. And it's got a huge cast. It's got, like, Paul Newman and Steve McQueen... And uh, Faye Dunaway, a lot of uh, O.J. Simpson, of course, uh, also shows up. Another person we wouldn't want to bring up, but of course he shows up in this. It's so fucking long. (laughs) It's like two hours and 45 minutes, and at least 30 minutes of that near the beginning when everyone realizes there's a fire is all of them bickering about getting to an elevator, getting to like the right elevators, which like... I know fire safety was probably different in the 70s. I'm sure people weren't as aware, but I would think that after maybe five minutes, especially after a few people have come out horribly burning from the elevators, somebody would have figured way earlier than 30 minutes about like, let's take the fucking stairs. Like, they spend 30 minutes bickering about elevators and then they go to the stairs after that it's just like, oh, let's let's do, take the stairs. Baby. That's a good idea. And oh no, the stairs have burnt up because you spent too much time <laughs> trying to go to fucking elevators. It's a fire. <laughs> Get to the fucking stairs, you idiots. And it, the whole, then there's another like two and a half hours after that fucking bit. It's just, it's so long. It's so ponderous. There's a couple of good like big disaster explosion fire sequences that are pretty well done even for the time. They're really spectacular. But, Man, there are few and far between a lot of moments of celebrities just trying to argue about like, oh man, should we get to the elevator, or should we get to the stairs, or should we? well, what do we need to do? It just—it's so long and dull and boring, and I wasn't a huge fan. All
0: right, full transparency, I did say I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, so now I'm glad I didn't that didn't get chosen because it yep, sounds very odd. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, for your other ones, I didn't bother with Don't Look Up based on sort of your uh, first opinion and then a couple other people whose opinions I trust. So I completely skipped it and I'm glad I did and I will continue to do so and live my life. And then for your good, yeah, Melancholia is a fucking great movie, but it's so depressing, bums me out so much. And it is the only large Runtier movie I actually really like. Um, I'm also not really big on him. But yeah, Melancholia is just like, oof, you know, like sit in a bath for like three days after you watch it, like without even any water running. And then I never even heard of The Day the Earth Caught Fire. That sounds pretty cool, though. Like, I, I'm I'm going to try to seek that one out. It sounds fun. And of course, early Michael Caine. But yeah, I'm always down for an old school sort of disaster fantasy sci-fi romp. Uh, so yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I, I, I'm definitely excited to check that one out.
1: Just to emphasize, by the way, with the Michael Caine of it all, he appears near the very end and has, like, three or four lines. But you'll be able to notice him the moment, like, there's just a point where somebody's trying to get across, like, a brigade, and he's, like, the guard there. He's just like, oh, you need to take over the left at Burma, and then do that. It's just like, oh, it's totally Michael Caine. Of course it's you, Michael Caine. Sure. <laughs> Immediately distinctive. But Adam, what are your choices?
0: Uh, okay, so for my good, briefly, I have a crawl from Alexander Aja uh yeah you guys might know him he's the guy who did like the hills have eyes remake and things like that silly premise on paper giant storm floods this town in florida crocodiles and alligators or whatever ones that you fuckers have down there get loose
1: alligators,
0: alligators get loose and sort of like terrorize this girl who's trying to save her father lives in the area and uh they terrorize her and her father and sort of anybody else who comes around the house that's you know sort of flooding and and sinking and filling up with rainwater like i said sounds silly but man is it thrilling and brutally violent and just you genuinely care about the father-daughter relationship Uh, a lot of cool side characters show up the sort of intensity is amplified non-stop uh and some of the best cgi sort of alligators i've ever seen um it really looks good it's really really fun and it's not like overtly long and it, it definitely keeps your attention uh, and then the other one i have is uh you know i think everybody knows the story uh alive about the plane that crashed in the alps and, uh, you know, the, the people on board who survived were forced to cannibalism and things like that. It just sounds disgusting. There's a couple scenes that always stick with me. I bet if I watch them now, it would be nothing. But as a kid, it, it sort of scarred me. At the time, it was the most thrilling thing I've ever seen. Um, so I would definitely, you know, it's a half recommendation because I haven't seen it in a long time. But it has a good reputation still. A lot of people still like it. Uh, and then for my bad, quickly, I have Hard Rain starring Christian Slater, Randy Quaid, Morgan Freeman. It's an action movie set during a flood about people who are robbing an armored car. And it is so laughably stupid. It is so over-the-top dumb. It it reminds me of sort of like when Hollywood was really trying to ape, you know, John Woo-style movies with the -the over-the-top action and sort of slow camera effects and, you know, the doves flying through and the reluctant rookie hero who's got a checkered past. It's just a terrible, terrible film. And it, to me, this really sort of started the, when I realized that, oh, Morgan Freeman will do anything. And this was the very first movie that made me really realize that. It's a terrible, terrible film. And then uh, my other one, I originally had something else in it, but as we were uh, talking about one of our features, I just remembered how bad it was and how over all over the place it is. I have the Cloverfield Paradox. You know, I think a lot of people saw it because it did that famous... During the Super Bowl, it was advertised as premiering on Netflix after the Super Bowl. It came out of nowhere. And at first, I'm like, wow, that's a really fucking cool idea. Oh, man, I can't believe they're doing that. Then I watch them like, oh, I get why they did that, because no way this was going to do well in the theaters. It's bad this the effects work isn't good it's a really good ensemble cast but nobody really knows what they're doing because the movie doesn't even know what it's trying to be is it a sci-fi movie is it a kaiju movie is it a movie about interdimensional travel or alternate realities uh It's all of those because you can definitely tell that the sort of kaiju subplot was definitely shoehorned into this to make it a Cloverfield movie, which is completely unnecessary because 10 Cloverfield Lane came out before it and had nothing to do with the original Cloverfield. Um, So it's just, to me, you know, this put the death nail in the Cloverfield franchise for me. I don't need to see it revisited. I thought it was a really cool idea to do a a new movie, just have the word Cloverfield somehow related to it, but have it be a weird sci-fi, maybe horror movie, maybe action movie, maybe whatever you want to do with it, but have them loosely tied just by name. And this one killed any hope for me for that continuing going forward. It's such a huge letdown, especially with the cast.
1: Um, Yeah. So I've seen half of your four various picks i'll say i haven't seen hard rain or alive alive weirdly is such a movie that like i've known through cultural osmosis mostly it's just like the movie where they cannibalize each other but particularly where someone like eats someone else's butt Mm -hmm. like that's all of the cultural osmosis i know it's just the general story and at one point when they start eating people alive they just literally eat ass i guess
0: they they use like a piece of glass and cut off the
1: meat right of the the the, the gluteus maximus uh, as it were yeah that's that's most of what i'm aware of with that movie i'm sure it's a bit more than just the movie where somebody eats a butt um but that's just the weird cultural osmosis i'm aware of with that movie um and then uh with the other two though um i mean i remember seeing cloverfield paradox in a similar situation where it was right after the Super Bowl. I watched it with uh, some some friends, uh, some people who have been guests on the show previously, uh, and I remember not hating it when it came out, but the sort of backlash the next morning of people saying this was the worst fucking bullshit I've ever seen, this was so bad, this was so dumb, made me kind of think like, okay, I'm, I might have been affected by a bit of the hype with that one, so that and 10 Cloverfield Lane I would love to do on the show at some point, but that 10 years between the original Cloverfield and that movie um, kind of showed the weird de-evolution of, like, the J.J. Abrams mystery box thing. Where that was such a big hype around, like, Lost, particularly when that came out. Even though I wasn't a huge Lost fan. But that was around the time he was starting to say, like, oh, it's a mystery box. You have to have, like, the box where you got like, what's in the box? You got to find out what it is. And everybody's, like, searching around for it. What does it mean? And with Cloverfield, that worked spectacularly where, like, the viral marketing was so in- in fascinating. We are like, I have to find out what's in the box. But the difference is that, like, what was in the box was something that was, like, great. And still stood up on its own merits. As opposed to, as we found out, with many other J.J. Abrams things. It's like, oh man, what's the mystery? What's the thing? Oh, most of the time, it's pretty shitty. It's most of the time, it's like a Super 8, or like a Rise of Skywalker, or a Star Trek Into Darkness. Like, particularly with, not so much the setups that he does for some of these things are really interesting, but it's more when he tries to kind of like pay it off. It's like, oh, you don't know how to do that. You're a great first act guy. And then that really fucking falls apart when we have to introduce what the actual thing is by the end of the movie. And even with Cloverfield Paradox, just the reveal, like, oh, what's the movie? Is still, even with whatever feelings I had, was still, at that time even, I thought, oh, the, like, worst of those Cloverfield movies by a mile. And then, uh, Crawl, I mean, is great. And I think a lot of it has to do with admittingly. That was one of my favorite theater experiences, was seeing Crawl in Florida during a rainstorm with a bunch of fucking Floridians. It was like experiencing 4DX. It was just like being there and immersed perfectly and all that. And even when I've seen it uh, at other times, I was like, oh, no, this movie's still just great. Yeah. It's fucking
0: awesome. It's super exciting. I'm glad to see Barry Pepper, you know, doing something other than, you know, shitty direct-to-DVD movies.
1: Oh, and plus, another great thing, a modern movie where it hits credits at like 85 minutes. Oh. (laughs) Oh, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> Mamba me, so good. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, let's uh, go ahead and we'll repeat our titles as we like to do at the end of the Double Reduce so everybody can uh, pick up on it in case you missed it. Uh, my good picks were Melancholia and The Day the Earth Caught Fire. And then my two bad picks were Don't Look Up and The Towering Inferno.
0: And my two good picks were Crawl and Alive. And my bad choices were Hard Rain and The Cloverfield Paradox.
1: Yes, and we encourage you all to definitely submit your own double redo choices to some of the various socials and uh, emails that we are going to talk about in a bit. And uh, stay tuned for the end of the show where we'll be doing our picking for next week's episode. But before we do that, we got to thank some people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thor-Lally for the artwork for our show. Follow him at Night of Water. That's Night with a K underscore of underscore Water on Twitter, where you can find a link tree that'll get you to all his other great places for artwork. And of course, thank you to our Patreon supporters at patreoncom pod, where for just a one dollar a month, you all get to uh, vote for topics we do like. Disaster films—you all voted for that. Thank you so much, patrons, and uh, you also get to uh, vote for individual movies we cover, and of course, listen to a bonus podcasts uh, where uh, we, you know, like to do on the edge of relevance, where we cover modern movies, uh, but also we like to do at least one other like big monthly thing. We do a rotation on, and around the time you know this is the last episode of January coming out uh, by the end of the month, you'll be able to hear us count down our top ten film scores. Uh, very curious to record that. And uh, just talk about uh, film music. It'll be an interesting discussion, I'm sure. It's going to be
0: boring. Nobody wants to hear us talk.
1: Such a pitchman. I just love how <laughs> you're able to sell. <laughs> hey, so baby. So well. <laughs> yep, that's what that, I do. That used car dealership job you just got's going to work out perfectly for you.
0: <laughs> that's what they call the sizzle with the steak. <laughs>
1: hey, look at this old jalopy. It's a piece of shit. So how
0: much... How much? Look, you don't want to drive this fucking thing. Ten thousand dollars, baby.
1: <laughs> Perfect salesman. Yes, uh, but for one dollar, you get all that the bonus content, jalopy, stuff, all there. Perfect for mm. you. Yes, uh, but for more of us, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at dedvpod, and also uh, email us bill at gmail dot com. All spelled out for like feedback that we'll probably read on the show or any of your double redo choices uh, for topics we've done. And uh, you can also uh, find our individual stuff like myself over on Twitter, Instagram, and letterboxes at not the who's Tommy, but I also do some writing at both my blog, thomas.wordpress.com and film-cred.com. You can find
0: me on the Twitter or Instagram at atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. Or you can also find me on letterbox at Schwanson. Schwandtson.
1: Yes, and for more of us uh, yapping about, uh, please uh, follow us on places like uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, uh, please make sure to dig into not just our show, but all the other great shows that are on the network, lots of fun ones talking about film and such. And you can also uh, dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed for over 190 episodes uh, prior to us joining Talk Film Society. A huge backlog for you to listen to over there. Links in the description for stuff like that. And if nothing else, if you can't, support us on the Patreon. The completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because that gets us more visibility out there.
0: Yeah, you know, the thing is, you guys have been doing pretty good. I got nothing to say. You guys are doing all right. Thanks, guys. Oh, wow.
1: You didn't insult our audience for once. That's a, that's a rarity. Okay, oh it's a sign of the apocalypse. <laughs> Christian go fix yourself. Oh, okay. We're good. We're yep. good. All oh, good. Oh, the balance of the earth is restored. Well, before we head on out of here, Adam, it's time we do our picking for next week because every week uh, Adam and I each uh, have you know two choices to pick from for the next week's uh, particular topic Uh, I in this case will have two good movies Adam has two bad obviously we switch off on the quality uh, every week for that and uh, the way we do it is we assign numbers between one and ten for each of our choices and the alternate person Picks number between one and ten, and whatever that's closest to of the other person's good and the other person's bad choices as well, we get our good and our bad feature for the next week. And uh, keep in mind, though, there is a little rule we've instituted called the Godfather Rule, where last May, Adam and I each received a veto that basically enabled us to hear one of the choices from the other person after we picked number between one and ten. The person says, oh, that was closest to Blah at number five or whatever. And, you know, the other person would be like, hmm, you know what? I don't want to cover Blah. So actually, I'm going to take the cannoli, which means that particular choice is off the record and we have to go with whatever other choice that has been said uh, as the alternate. And uh, Adam has already used his previously, but I still have mine in the back pocket. And I have to use that by our next anniversary in May. So it's just burning a hole back here. And I might use it for uh, the next week's topic because Adam has the two bad choices for Next week, uh, we, you know, it's coming up in February. This will be the first episode of February we're doing. We like to cover, you know, especially in February, at least one sort of black artist that we would like to appreciate. Uh, we've done, you know, like Denzel Washington previously in February and, you know, a few other people. But we decided, especially, we haven't done that many um, black actresses, unfortunately. So we decided to rectify that a bit by covering, especially one who we feel doesn't get enough credit despite being an Oscar winner and being a great all-around talent. Uh, we are covering Regina King. As a topic, which uh, yeah. is exciting. I, I love Regina King.
0: Me too. Really do. I always have, actually.
1: I always uh, I mean, rely The first
0: on. time I saw her was Friday.
1: Uh, a lot of people, yes, saw her on Friday yep. the first time, yes.
0: Yep, and she's just been great ever since. Yes.
1: Uh, hey, everyone. Um, this is Thomas and Adam here uh, from the future after... Uh, this the recording of this original episode Uh, we're recording a bit of an addendum here uh, because obviously we're about to do the picking for an episode about uh, Regina King and uh, unfortunately right after we recorded there was uh, some really upsetting tragic news about her son uh, Ian Alexander Jr. having uh, passed away due to uh, suicide Uh, that literally broke about an hour after we're done recording and we really want to send out condolences obviously to Regina King and her family about a horrible, tragic event like this and really emphasize we'd had this planned out for a while. We're not trying to you know, piggyback anything with this. It was just an unfortunate circumstance of timing on that.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that, you know, we might be a lot of things, but we want to be someone to capitalize on sort of such a tragedy, for yeah. sure. I mean, awful, awful news. And, you know, I just want to add out, too, Uh, As someone who's actually used it before, but if you're having any sort of thoughts of self-harm or maybe know somebody who is, you know, the hotline is a great tool, you know, it's, it it does help. And, you know, I know some people might be hesitant to call if they know, you know, of someone who's, you know, going to maybe hurt themselves because they're afraid of what that person might think, but, you know, always, always better for that person to maybe be upset with you or embarrassed than the ultimate other thing that could happen. And uh, I just want to say the number out loud for anybody. It's 1-800-273-8255. Once again, that's 1-800-273-8255. It's, they're always available uh, 24 hours a day to anybody that needs it. They you know can speak any language that you might need um it's just it's a really really helpful tool
1: yeah definitely co-sign that but um now back to the program and uh, i have the two good movies for her career and you have the two bad so adam first for my two good choices please pick number between one and ten
0: since it's february i'll go number two
1: okay you know this is interesting i have a movie at number one which is not one that she actually appears in but is her directorial debut that uh, came out during the last Oscar season. And I think it kind of slipped under the radar a bit. I think it's a quite interesting movie about a bunch of uh, great figures in history kind of chilling around uh, in a hotel. It is uh, One Night in Miami.
0: Yeah, man, that's cool. I've always wanted to watch it. I just never got around to it. Uh, Yeah, that's great. Sweet. I'm excited for that.
1: Yes, and on the other side of things, over at number nine, I had the movie she won her Oscar for, the... uh, film from uh, Barry Jenkins to follow up his Oscar wins for Moonlight if Beale Street could talk.
0: Also never seen that, either. So, either way, win-win for me, baby.
1: Alright, yes. But now, Adam, your two bad choices. I'm very curious where this will go. So, hmm. I'm gonna go ahead and go with number seven.
0: all right At number nine, I have... Which is technically a remake starring uh, Mr. Chris Rock. I have Down to Earth.
1: Oh, the remake of Heaven Can Wait. Yes. This is interesting, because this was... I've seen Heaven Can Wait, but I'd only seen it a couple years ago, though I'd seen this movie in the theater. Oof. Hmm. Yes, but I had the option to take the cannoli um i remember not even liking it that much of the time i'm sure it will only go down my estimation but you know what i'm not going to take the cannoli on this one
0: yeah i was gonna say don't waste it on this <laughs> <laughs> uh for my other choice at number one i had miscongeniality
1: Oh, i haven't even seen the first miscongeniality those are ones i missed
0: well you're not i wouldn't say you missed them am
1: i missing miscongeniality <laughs>
0: <laughs> no you're good you dodged a bullet well
1: okay but down to earth and one night in miami two very interesting films uh that we'll uh, talk about next week but until then everybody uh you know just hunker down because there's got to be a morning after if we can hold on to the night <sighs> <Gio story>. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure that's what dean devlin said after the box office came yeah. in for that one Yeah. yeah.